The word of God from 1 Samuel. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply dis distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out, and the God of Israel, of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Sean. Would you please remain standing as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we receive these ancient uh, stories uh, that tell us about you, and they tell us about ourselves. We want to know you, and we want to worship you in truth and in spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be honored through, through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would illumine this ancient story, that we would know you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We commit it all to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm Ronnie, in case you're just now joining us. 
Well, this morning, we're starting a new sermon series um, on Samuel, First and Second Samuel. Uh, we'll be in this, just to kind of give you a frame of reference, we'll be in this uh, book really until Advent. We'll take a break at Advent, then afterwards we'll pick it back up, and that'll take us all the way into Lent. Um, the, this, the sermon series title, and I guess we need one of those, I don't know why we do, but here we are, um, is Searching for a King. Searching for a King. Now, why? Well, here's why. Whether you live in a democracy or uh, you have a, a monarch or whatever political arrangement it is, you have a king. <laughs> you might not recognize it as such, but there's something that commands you, that directs you, something or someone who affirms you, provides for you a measuring stick to tell you if you measure up, to tell you if you are doing good, to tell you what is good and what is worthy or beautiful, to compel you to live and to love and to make sacrifices in a certain way. So you have a king, a sovereign, whether you recognize it or not. And if this is true, and it is, then you better have a good king and not a despot. You need a king who will draw out your glory and cultivate the glory inside of you and not steal it from you or rob you of this glory. And so First and Second Samuel is, is really a perfect Old Testament book for modern people. Uh, these two books were written together. I know there's two of them, but they were written together to, to be understood together. And one of the main features of the stories in Samuel is to help you recognize the king when he comes and when he calls. Now, if you uh, know much about First and Second Samuel, then you'll know that it is the story of the unlikely ascent of King David. I know it's First and Second Samuel, but it could have been First and Second King David. Um, how? Um, well, Samuel. It's called Samuel, uh, and Samuel is kind of nicknamed the kingmaker. The kingmaker. Samuel is the one who crowns the very first two kings of Israel. First you had Saul and then David. And David, as you may know, is the most famous and revered king of ancient Israel. And he is sacrificial and he loves God. Uh, he beautifully captures deep spiritual, uh, the, our deep spiritual life through poetry. Um, he's virtuous in really hard circumstances. But he's also cowardly and adulterous, and he's a liar, and he's self-addicted, and he's all of those things at the same time. He's really both, just like us. And we're going to learn about a God who made promises to this broken man and these promises still mean everything to modern people today. But David's story does not start with David. Like most important stories in the Bible, it begins with a woman who wanted to have a baby, but couldn't. So let me set up the context of 1 Samuel for you. 
Um, our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, it's right, before the book, or right after the book of Judges, and it, and it picks up in a moment of Israel's history before they had a king. Uh, if you'll remember, Israel had come out of Egypt, and then they were in the desert, then they came out of the desert into the promised land, and so they had been there for a little bit of time. And at that time, uh, Israel was ruled by judges. Now, judges um, are like local, regional protectors uh, or like military rescuers. Uh, when you hear the word judge, don't think about like men or women wearing black robes and white wigs, uh, wielding a gavel, uh, working for the legal system. That's, that's not what a judge is. The, the, uh, the book of Judges uh, are really like, are, the, the judges are really like military commanders of sorts. Uh, and they, the book of Judges talks about many of them. You know many of their stories. Uh, but really the story of Judges is that there's a lot of disobedience. Israel had forgotten God's law. And so God raises up foreigners and there's these foreign invasions. And so the people will cry out. And then God commissions uh, a judge, a military commander to protect them. And there's rescue. And so the cycle goes over and over again and, until you really just want it to stop. Um, see, the judge was this, a commander that was a stand-in because Israel had no king. And things were devolving into chaos. There's this refrain in the book of Judges, and it repeats it four times. Israel had no king. Four times. And the book of Judges even ends like that. It's an ominous thing. So in the book of Samuel, the curtain goes up on the most unlikely family. You get this guy named Elkanah, and he has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Uh, two wives, you know, there's this, if you're listening carefully, there's this pattern in the Bible. Whenever there's two wives, it's like never a good thing. It never works out. It's always a bad idea. We're gonna, we'll look at that a little bit here in a little bit. But Hannah, the, the first wife, she, her name means favored. She is the favored one, but she's barren and infertile. And then you have Penina, and she's fruitful, and she has lots of children. But she kind of has this like nasty attitude. And as we kind of study this, the story arc of Hannah, we're going to find her, her story begins with bitter bitter tears, but it ends in profound worship. So this book of Samuel is going to help us to look for the king and to recognize him. But today in chapter one, we're going to see the origin stories of this kingmaker of Samuel. Samuel, the very last judge of Israel. And how did he get here? Well, his mama is Hannah. And Hannah knew she needed a king to heal her broken heart. So we're going to learn together today to wait for the king by letting go through prayer. So for you note takers, it's just a two-point sermon. Letting go, point one, and then letting go through prayer, point two. And warning, point one is significantly longer than point two. So let's begin with point one, letting go. So it's quite a passage, right? It took two pages on your bulletin. It's a, it's a really interesting story, isn't it? If you've grown up, with the, grown up in the church, you're probably familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 1. It has brought comfort to many mothers who have struggled with infertility. 
you know, the story really shoves this in the face of the reader, honestly. Um, we don't know a lot about Hannah, but we know one thing, that she has a major problem. Verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. She is barren. Now, interestingly, this is a pattern in the Bible. The Lord uses the most unlikely people, people who are otherwise invisible to society. And they're not invisible to God. God sees them. Think about Sarah, Abraham's wife, infertile for most of her life. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, barren for 25 years. Rachel, Jacob's wife, struggled with infertility. Uh, These are all pictures. And the reason why is because at the very beginning of time, God says, be fruitful and multiply. But that multiplying part seems like this impossibility. But it's worse than that. Because an infertile woman of God's people was a hard deal. See, Hannah felt a sense of exclusion from the very purposes that God has for his people. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and she can't do her part. And God is doing something awesome. And she says, I have no part in it. I have no part in it. And so Hannah feels that exclusion. And it also comes with a societal, a social stigma. It was humiliating. And it's really important for you to understand this in order to understand 1 Samuel. In that culture, bearing children was the single most important thing a woman could do. A barren woman was tantamount to dead weight. She was considered economically useless because really you needed a litter of children to have, an econo- uh, to have a labor force. In a world with no pension or 401ks, children are your retirement program. And mortality rates are high, so you would need about 10 kids so that maybe three or four of them would make it into adulthood. And societally speaking, fruitful women were considered heroes in Israel because they filled up the ranks of the local militia. Now her husband, he seems to be a little different. He's trying to be nice. Verse 8, he says, why do you weep? Am I not worth to you more than 10 sons? It's not about you, Elkanah. <laughs> right? He's, he's kind of missing the point, isn't he? In fact, everyone is missing the point. And maybe we are missing the point. See, Hannah feels social shame And she's weeping bitterly because she can't have children, which is, in her culture, the marker of worth. And Panina, her arch rival, she's living really under the same marker of worth, except she does have children. And so instead of weeping, what does she do? She gloats. See, people who win at the game of culture gloat. And people who lose at the game of culture weep and hate themselves. Elkanah is is trying to be kind to Hannah, but he is still playing a similar game. He's saying, listen, you you can't have kids, but, but you can have me. I mean, other husbands only value their wives if they have children, but I, I still love you and, and you get me. 
And isn't that what Panina wants? To be loved by a husband? She can have kids, but she can't have a husband who loves her. See, everyone is playing the same version of the culture game, and everyone is losing. And you might think that finding worth by having kids is so primitive. Aren't you glad that our culture has evolved from such trite superficiality? Well, guess what? Bad news. See, each society has a basis to measure the value of a person. And we, as modern Denverites, are no more sophisticated than they were. What culture game are we playing? Are you beautiful? Do you have the body that culture approves? Do you have money? You know, one pastor asks, why are we so obsessed with under-eating and overworking? Here's your answer. It's our culture game. Another pastor, Scott Sauls, in Nashville, he tells a story about a billionaire in London who lost half of his wealth in 2008, and it took him to the verge of suicide. He still has half a billion dollars. That is an untold fortune on the verge of suicide. But it wasn't about the money. It was about his self-identity, the thing that was protecting him from the shame of his culture. I am afraid that we are all playing the culture game, and we're no better than that ancient culture in 1 Samuel. Elkanah tried to offer himself as consolation, but he wasn't really helpful. He was an enabler. But something in the story arc for Hannah changes. Listen, Hannah didn't want to get sucked into the vortex of her husband's offer. Verse 9 tells us that after that comment, she went to Shiloh. And so just a little Bible uh, geography, Shiloh is the first place where the, the tabernacle was set up. It's, it's a historic location. It's, uh, Shiloh is to the tabernacle what the temple is to Jerusalem. So Hannah goes there to pray. And in her grief, she's gushing out to God, just gushing. And, and she's letting go of her present. She's letting go of those things that gave her identity. See, God sometimes withholds things that we think we cannot live without. But in reality, we can't actually live with those things because they shrink our soul. Every part of you is designed for God and nothing else. And God knows this. And while Hannah is praying, we see her motivations begin to change. And this is happening in a deep level. She, as she's pouring out her soul to God, Eli, the priest, doesn't even know what to do with that deep, profound connection. He thinks she's drunk. You know, Israel was in such a rotten state at the time that being drunk in the tent, in the tabernacle, was actually plausible. And what does she say to the Lord with her whole heart? Look at verse 11. O Lord of hosts, that title right there, Lord of hosts. We say that all the time, don't we? It's a very common title. 
This is the first time in the whole Bible that this title is used. O Lord of hosts, the God who has armies at his command and can do anything. And look at the second part of verse 11. If you will, if you will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now she does not want children for children's sake or for her own sake. She wants her life to be wrapped up into God's purposes. She's going to give this child back. He won't work the farm. He can't take care of her because this child is set apart for priestly and prophetic purposes. In other words, even if she gets a son, she won't benefit from him. This boy is for the Lord's purposes. And she even makes a promise that no razor shall touch his head. You might know this as a a Nazarite vow. It comes from the Hebrew word nazir, which just means to set apart or to consecrate. Uh, It just comes with a few vows. One is uh, you can't cut your hair, uh, no alcohol. You can't be around dead bodies because that would kind of disqualify you from some of your priestly obligations. Uh, There's two really famous uh, men who took Nazarite vows in the Bible. You probably know them. One is Samson, right, the dreads. And then the other one is John the Baptist. But here what we see in this prayer is Hannah is changing. She wants to be wrapped up into God's purposes. And so she is letting go. And as she poured her heart heart out in this to the Lord in prayer, she's letting go of these present dreams. And you know how I know that this is happening? She made the request and then told Eli, the priest, she says, verse 18, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Hannah's name means favored. Let the favored one find favor in your eyes. And then this woman went away and ate And it says, and her face was no longer sad. That is an Old Testament way of saying that she let go. She gave herself fully to God's purposes. See, before she wouldn't even eat and her face was smeared with tears. But now she let go of the present and gave herself fully to the Lord's purposes. And she is peaceful with God's purposes for her. She is peaceful even before she got pregnant. See, this happens before she had any assurance of a child. In fact, she doesn't even have conjugal relationships with her husband until afterwards. And nevertheless, she is letting go in prayer. She wants the Lord. Hannah's infertility really showed the spiritual state of Israel. That's what she represents. And what is the spiritual state of Israel? Just like Hannah's womb, it was empty. But if that is true, then the humility and the legacy of letting go of the present is how then God's people move back into right relationship with God, back into meaningful connection with God. Our sense of certainty that God will restore the future begins with the humility of letting go of the present 
and all the things that you think you need. Denver Prez, where do you need to let go? Is your prayer life about letting go? Or is your prayer life about getting things? God, answer my prayer. Not, God, I'm letting go of my prayer. What things do you need to let go so that you can wrap your life into God's purposes so that your children, if you have them, would be wrapped up into God's purposes or so that your singleness would be wrapped up into God's purposes? Or is your prayer just about something that you need to have so that because if you, because if you had it, you could finally be happy? Because if you get it, God knows it would shrink your soul. Let's together, let's let go and let's stop playing the culture game. Well, how do we do that? Well, there's a few ways, but in our text, letting go begins with prayer. And so this is our second point in our conclusion, letting go through prayer. So um, our work emails here at Denver Prez are like, we use the G Suite um, it's Gmail, right, through Google. Probably a few of you are familiar with this. So my Ronnie at denverprez.org, it's really just a Gmail. And so when I log in, it has all the features of a Gmail, which includes a nudge. Um, anyone know what I'm talking about, the nudge? Yeah. The nudge is a function that moves the emails that you have not responded to or maybe you haven't heard back from for whatever reason, and it moves it to the top of the stack. Part of me loves it uh, because I have this terrible memory and I constantly live in fear of forgetting something important. Just, I want you to know that about me. I have anxiety about it. And um, part of me hates it because I hate feeling pestered by my Gmail. But when you read um, Hannah's prayer, what you see there is she sets up a really serious nudge. Look again at that prayer in verse 11. She says, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. I mean, she's saying, Lord of hosts, look at me. Remember me. Don't forget me. Lord, just please look at me. Hannah is insistent that God keep her at the top of his stack. You guys, Hannah is talking to the God of the universe. He is the one who fashioned all of creations and its very pillars. This is the one who divides the light from the dark, the firmament from the land. But as far as Hannah is concerned, she has his full attention when she prays. And she is absolutely right. And I think we can't hear this enough that we have God's full attention when we pray. You know, we learned in verse 3 that Hannah's family went to Shiloh every year. It's likely to celebrate the Passover. And there's something about Shiloh about that trip that brought painful clarity to what she didn't have. I mean, maybe it was 
the smell of the trees in Shiloh that time of year. Maybe it was the travel songs that were their family's tradition every time they took their caravan, caravan to Shiloh. Maybe it was just the sight of how the sun sets on those rolling hills. Whatever it was, she remembers her pain. But this one year, she goes into the tabernacle. She goes into the tent to pray for things that are completely out of her control. You know, even non-religious people know that it is one of the most natural things It's one of the most human things to do when you are in pain is to just call out to God about the stuff in our lives. Because everyone knows that someone is listening. Now, Peter Lightheart says, every prayer is like Hannah's prayer. All prayer is an attempt to talk to God about the details of our lives And this is a running conversation with God about our shared life with him in the world. To talk to God about our shared life, our shared life with him in this world. Listen, church, letting go starts with prayer. And prayer is not just for Sundays and these liturgies that we write and provide for you, though they're really important. They're not just these things that we do at rehearsed times during ceremonial events. It's not just something we do before meals or or before bed. All prayer is our attempt to talk to God about the stuff of our lives. And it's a constant conversation with God all day. That's why Paul would tell us that it's to pray without ceasing. Praying about the stuff of our lives. And keeping this dialogue going makes us healthier people. We let go of stuff as we experience God meeting with us. Prayer is a means of grace. It changes us. And mysteriously, God even tells us that he uses our prayers to change stuff in the world. And I don't even know how that happens. And so Hannah prays. She says, look, remember, don't forget me. She nudges, similar to the persistent widow that Jesus teaches us about, saying, God, I I know you care about me. Like, I know you do. I'm not going to leave you alone. Hannah prays like God knows all about her life, all about her, all about her grief. And she is right. She's adding her own agency through prayer, but this situation is completely out of her control. And Eli, the priest, he's standing outside the temple, kind of like a sentry, and he just accuses her of being drunk because he's never seen anything like this before. But she corrects him, and he's convinced, and he prays that God would grant her petition. And he has no idea of of her petition. He just heard the gushing. And she knows that he has no idea. And when she leaves, something had changed, even though nothing had changed. You follow me? Something changed, even though nothing had changed. All she did was pray, and prayer changes everything. Now, what any of this has to do with the political life of Israel or the kingship of David, 
No one knows yet, but we do know that prayer changes everything. And so we must wait on the king by letting go through prayer. 1,000 years later, another barren woman would let go and pray. Elizabeth, her prayer was powerful. She would let go. She'd want to wrap her purposes into God's life. She would give birth to John the Baptist, who would take a Nazarite vow, and he would be the one who would see the arrival of the king, and he would crown Israel's last king, who's our Savior, Jesus. Amen? Amen.